seat. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Russ. Good morning. So glad you guys are here. Hey, my name is JT. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful you're here today. If we didn't get a chance to meet before the service, please come find me. Would love to talk with you. Would love to meet you. Would love to answer any questions at all that you have. And so today, um, you actually can go ahead and turn to John 11 if you want to. Kayla's going to be reading from John 11. She'll introduce that passage in a second. But before we do, um, for those of you that don't know Kayla, I think most of you do. Kayla has been around Freshwater for how many years? That's a really good question. Um, at least six. At least six. But freshwater itself, like ten. Oh yeah, because she was a, she was an old Freshwater Bolivar, the church that planted us. She's like legacy, right? So she came from Bolivar, uh, came up here, and so the reason I. Um, we're talking before she reads the passage today, is Kayla was once one of our His Kids directors, and she stepped away from that, had a baby, had school, had all of these things, stepped away from that role for a while. But Kayla has graciously said, hey, I'm ready to step back up into that role and be one of our directors. Yeah, yeah. While um, I didn't ask beforehand, so I'm sorry. Beth, will you stand up? I was hoping you're going to be right here. This is Beth. If you don't know Beth, she was one of our Hits Kids directors for a long time. She, um, if you ever got to, ever got to talk with Beth or thank Beth, could you find her? Sorry, I'm going to do this to you, Beth. Could you find her after the service and just thank her? Because she's the one, really, um, other people along with her, but she's the one for our kids more than anyone probably held us together during COVID. Jessica did too, right? Je- Jessica and Beth together, but Jessica even stepped away for a while when she is doing foster care. And so she stepped away when, when she got a, ch- a child into her home, and, and Beth was the one that was kind of our rock that made sure our His Kids thing didn't fall apart. Because I just want you, to, if you didn't know this, for lots of churches during COVID, their kids' departments fell apart. They didn't have the volunteers, they didn't have the people, everybody was exhausted, people were sick, and it was almost an impossible thing to hold together, but Beth held it together for us. So I just wanted to say from the front, thank you so much for all that you did. It was pretty, it was actually pretty miraculous, and we love you and we appreciate you. Now, Beth is getting the opportunity to take a well-deserved, way overdue break. And so, I don't know how that break, she may find a different place to serve in our church, may come back to kids eventually, we don't know, but I don't even want her to think about that. She still serves our church and does a lot, um, but she's taking a break from that. And Kayla said, hey, I can step back up into that role. And, and uh, that's an amazing thing that God has done lately. We've needed some roles filled, and we need more roles filled, but we've had multiple people lately um, say, hey, you know what, I can step up, I can help lead, I can help do this. And that's what the church is supposed to be, right? All of us working together to build each other up to be more than we could ever be alone. And so, Kayla, we just wanted to say thank you and welcome back. Is there anything you wanted to say? It's just really good to be back. And the way that Freshwater has made it so that there's lots of leaders so that we share things has really made the burden easier to bear. So praise God for Beth and for Jess and for me being able to step right back in. So JT said we are in John 11 today. If you are there, I'm a teacher by trade, so I'm like always watching. So um, John 11 verse 17 is where we're going to start. We're going to go all the way to 37. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come also with her weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? All right. Thanks, Kayla. Um, before we jump in really quickly, I just want to remind you, I think Brandon's going to give you the details, but next week is Church in the Park. I hope you can make it. Man, I know for our His Kids team, it's not always the most exciting thing, Church in the Park, which I think they've kind of made it a well-oiled machine. They figured it out. But Church in the Park is one of my favorite things to be outside. So let's pray for great weather. We always have this as a backup if Church in the Park doesn't work. So if it's raining, check social media, check our website, but more than likely, we're just going to be back here. Um, but also, um, if you can be there, be there. If you've never been to church in the park, literally Tom Watkins Park is right there. If you could see through trees, you'd see the park. And so there's a road down there called Elizabeth. You just take a right. And what's really cool about that is if, if you've been coming for, to Freshwater for any amount of time, you know eventually we want to build a community center in this neighborhood. Um, Tom Watkins is... is uh, it's a great neighborhood, but it's also one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in our city here on the north side. And the city has no plans to build a community center there anytime soon. So if we can raise the money and we can do it, instead of building a church, we want to build a community center where we'll do church on Sunday mornings, but is also open to the community the, the, rest of, the rest of the year, the rest of the week. And so what's cool about it is if you turn and you go that way, south on Elizabeth Street. The park will be just right down the street and you take a right. If, you, if you've never been there before, if you look to the left, there's a big open field. That's the land that we bought. Um, and that's the land we eventually want to build the community center on. So it's really cool how God aligns all of these things. So Church in the Park is going to be right across the street at, at 10 o'clock. Um, and we don't know if we're going to be able to have power. So you might get to hear me scream next week if we don't have a mic, but we'll, fi we'll figure all that out. But that's going to be next week. And then two kind of other big announcements. One, is if you were here last week, you heard this. Unfortunately, there's some construction work they've got to do in Williams. I know they just built the building, but there's some problems that got kind of got discovered after they built it. And so from June until through July, we have to be out of the building. Um, so we're going to go back to Freeway for those two months. So the first Sunday in June, we'll be out of Williams back at Freeway, which is where we were for two years. And then at the end of July, starting of August, we'll come back. Hopefully they'll be done by the end of July and we can move back in. But 
They kind of have to be done because school starts the second week of August, right? So they, they kind of have to be done. So we should be back in here by August. And then lastly, Brandon and Cassie's last week will be the last week end in May. And so we're going to have a time to pray over them as a church as they go to, to start their church. And so that will be their last week. And so if you've got any last um, things you want to share with Brandon and Cassie, you want to have lunch with them one last time or whatever, their schedule is very full with all the stuff that they've got going on as they prepare for the new church they're going to start. But you've got a couple weeks left to be able to meet with them and, and anything else that you want to talk to them about before they go. But that will be the week that we'll, man, we'll pray over them and send them out of here. Okay. I think that's it. So, let's jump in today. Um, ladies, in particular, I'm going to start with you. For, and, and in particular, those of, those of you who are married, what, what, is the, what would you say is the single biggest mistake that your husband makes over and over? Don't answer it, right? Don't answer it out loud. I don't want to deal with the fallout that's going to happen at lunch today if you answer that out loud. Don't answer it. I just want you to think it. What do you think is the single biggest mistake that your husbands tend to make over and over? Now, it, it, husbands, if we're honest, this list, if we're... It's probably a little bit too long, the mistakes over, I've been married 20 years, um, some of you've been married longer than that, we, we tend to make the same mistakes, but um, here, here's what I think, here's what I think is the biggest mistake as husbands in particular, we make over and over, is that we always try to fix things. We try, we try to fix it, right? Husbands, if you've been with me, know that you've tried to fix things when you shouldn't have tried to fix it, because often um, being married, we try to fix things immediately when the thing that we need to do is really listen to what's going on. We need to, we need to empathize with our wives about how they're feeling or what, what they're walking through, show that we understand what they're saying, that we're listening to what they're saying, and then when it's appropriate, when it's appropriate, maybe even be a little angry with them at whatever, whatever bad happened to them or whatever they feel like is wrong. Like kind of share in that anger with them if, if it's appropriate and before we try to fix anything. You don't know how many conversations I've had with couples where they feel like their husband doesn't listen to them and doesn't walk through things with them because we're always trying. That's how we're built as men. We want to fix it. But fixing it right away is not always the answer. Now, husbands, I haven't figured out everything in 20 years of marriage. I don't know that we ever, fix, we ever figured it all out. But here's what I think. Here's where I think we can really nail it is that if we actually listen and we empathize and, and mean it, when it's, where it's appropriate, be angry with them at all the injustices in the world and all the injustices that happen to them, and then when the time is right, we try to help them with the solution to the problem. We try to fix it. I think that's the sweet spot, right? When we actually listen and then we try to walk through them with it on how to fix it, how to improve the situation. Well, today, church, we're going to see something just, I'm going to say, really incredible from our husband. And I say our husband because if, you, if you've read Scripture, you know that Scripture describes us as the bride of Christ, right? The church is the bride of Christ, and Jesus is our husband. Or as Scripture might say, he's our bridegroom. He's our bridegroom. That's a very Bible word, right? But he's our bridegroom. And today, our Savior... Our Lord, our bridegroom in, in John 11, is going to show us exactly, exactly why he's so deserving of our full trust and our total faith. As if coming down from heaven to, to save us, to redeem us, as if coming down from heaven to go to the cross so that we could be forgiven from our sins and have salvation wasn't enough, he's going to show us that, that our husband, our bridegroom, really actually does understand our pain. And that he really is with us in our sufferings. 
and that he does listen to our hurts and he empathizes in our weaknesses and is even angry at the suffering that we have to go through in the first place. And a bonus, he's going to tell us how to fix it all. He's going to tell us how he is the fix to it all. Today, Jesus is going to tell us, he's going to show us that he is the resurrection and the life. And he's going to kind of lay out the depths of all that means for us right now and for all of eternity so that we can find our hope and put our faith and trust in him and him alone. That's where we're going today. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11 again. And we'll start back up at the top in verse 17. John 11, verse 17, and we'll just read a few verses to start off with. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So if you weren't here with us last week, Jesus was far away, right? He was over across the Jordan. He was quite a ways from here. And he got a message that his good friend, like it says that, that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Like these were his friends. And he'd heard that Lazarus was sick. And it says that he loved them. So because he loved them, he waited two days before he left, which seemed like a weird response if you were here last week. He heard his friend was deathly ill, and then he waited two days. And the disciples were a little confused about that. They didn't really know what was going on, but Jesus told them, listen, his, his illness and his eventual death, he told them that Lazarus is going to die. His sickness and eventual death is going to be for the glory of God. And it's going to be so that the Son may be glorified, and in that it's going to be so that you may believe. So that him waiting was actually his love for his people because through it, they were going to give God glory, see his glory, and people were going to be saved. And so the disciples didn't seem to really understand completely, but of course they followed, they were going to follow him. Well, after those two days, Jesus, they left. They came to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, right? And as we said last week, this is going to be the last time that Jesus leaves Jerusalem. I know we're only in chapter 11, but Jesus is now walking towards the cross. He's not leaving this area again. He's avoided Jerusalem because they want to kill him. That's why he left. And so when he said, no, we're going back to Bethany, his disciples know that's right next to Jerusalem where people want to kill him. And they're like, wait, 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 can't go back. And Jesus says, no, we're, going to, we're walking in the light of my father. We're, we're still walking towards his will so he's like, we're going. And so this is the last time Jesus will make the journey back to Jerusalem. And so they get to the village just outside of Bethany. He stops just outside of the village of Bethany. And so what we're going to see is the disciples didn't really understand before they left. And what we're going to see today is Mary and Martha, Lazarus's brother, sisters, are not going to really fully understand what Christ is doing either. And so here's where we're going to start. A bunch of friends and family all gathered around them, all have come because of the, the, the loss of their brother, as people do during times of funeral. And as Jesus approaches the village, Martha first is going to come out to meet him. That's where we're going to pick it up in, again in verse 20. So look at chapter 17, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Okay, let's stop there for a second. I think it's interesting that it says Martha heard that Jesus was coming 
and she went out to meet him, but Mary remained. Now, it's, it's possible that, that Martha heard it first and she just got so excited that she ran out of the house to go meet Jesus and didn't say anything to anyone else. I think that's unlikely. I think if Jesus came into town, people probably burst in like, the teacher is here, the rabbi is here, and she probably did hear about it. So I don't really know exactly what happened here, but it seems to me that, that Martha made the decision to stay behind. She wasn't ready to go out and meet Jesus. She's going to wait for him to come. Passages like this are, are kind of difficult at times because when we read something like this, we read our emotion into it. Do you know what I mean? We, we read our pain into it. We read our experience with death. We read how we would react to things into this passage. And so it doesn't tell us exactly why Martha stayed behind. We just know that she did. But from the rest of the passage, I think at least gives us the hint that, that, all, that Mary and Martha had different reactions, that, that Martha was maybe a little frustrated with Jesus, or at, at, at the least, maybe she, she's having trouble coming to grips with the fact that he didn't come and save her brother when she knew that he could have. But either way, here's what we know for sure. What we know for absolutely sure is that Martha went first and she went outside, just outside of Bethany, to meet Jesus. And when she gets to him, I think she has a, a, a very understandable, I would say even really faithful response to Jesus. She says to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask God, God will do. Man, this shows that, that she knows. Listen, she knows that God could have healed her brother. She knows that he has the power to do this. She believes in this. We're going to see here in just a second as we go through the passage that she's all in. But she doesn't understand what Jesus is truly going to do. She doesn't understand what's truly going to on, what's going on. And she doesn't understand why this has happened when Jesus could have done something about it. But it seems to me that she's still fully trusting Jesus, even though she doesn't understand it. Church, isn't that the response that we all should have, that we all long to have when we go through times of suffering, when we go through things that we don't fully understand? That, that we know that God is good, that we know that he'll do what's right, even when we don't understand. So even though we might be even a little bit frustrated that it didn't go the way that we wanted to, that we still trust him, still believe that he's good enough, that he can do whatever he wants to do and whatever he wants to do is going to be the good and right thing. Mary doesn't understand why Jesus didn't come to heal her brother, but she is still giving her trust to him in faith. And that's an example that we can follow. And next we're gonna see her faith kind of displayed on another level as Jesus lays out more and I think we're going to get to what I think is kind of the heart of the passage, really the, the point of this passage, the thing that we really need to grab on to today. So read with me in verse 23, chapter 11, verse 23. It says this, Jesus said to her, said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus tells her Lazarus is going to rise again. Um, but 
but she thinks it's, and she believes it, right? She believes it. She says, I believe, but she believes it in the context that, that we're all going to rise on the last day. We're, like, we're all going to rise into eternal life if we're believers in Christ. Now, we could see that. I think we could potentially see that as a lack of faith in Martha, and I think some people do. But she has absolutely no context that when Jesus says he's going to, that he'll rise again, that he means he's gonna, he, Jesus is going to go and resurrect him from the dead, because that's about what's, what's about to happen. Jesus is about to go do his greatest miracle, the last of the seven miracles in the book of John that declare who he is. He's going to go raise this guy from the dead. But when she says, Lazarus, Lazarus, he says, Lazarus will, will rise again. What context would she have that he's going to raise him from the dead? That doesn't happen, right? And I know if you're a Christian and you've heard Bible stories before, right? And you're in here in this room, we have the context for resurrection, don't we? We know the story of Jesus Christ. We just had Easter. We celebrate that thing. We, most of us, I'd say most of us in this room have at least heard something about the story of Lazarus before. So we have a context of people being risen from the dead. She does not. I don't know that she doesn't believe Jesus could do it if he wanted to, but she doesn't have the context for something rising from the dead. So I don't think this is a lack of faith. I just feel like she doesn't fully understand what's going on yet. Jesus is about to show her but really show all of them that the resurrection he is talking about here is not only about the end times, but about today. About what he's going to do today. Jesus is taking what she just said out of this like someday kind of talk and he makes it very personal. He makes it right now when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. One of the I am statements and John that point back to who God said his name is. God said when Moses asked, who are you? And he said, I am. I love that name of God. You've heard me say that before. You heard me say this in Exodus. Like, I am, I was, I will be, and I will be forevermore. I'm not some just person out there. I am. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. The truth, the hope, the promise of eternal salvation is standing right in front of her. And Jesus is showing her and he is showing us that this isn't just a future reality, but a reality right now for us. And so that's the question I want us to really say. Do we live in that reality today? I want you to ask the question, do I live in the reality today that Jesus is promising me a resurrected life in him right now and in the future? Do I stand on that hope? Do I walk in that hope? Do I walk in that truth? Because this is an important point because I think this moment points all the way back to the first sentences in the book of John. Do me a favor, flip back to John chapter one. Keep your place in John 17, but flip back to the very beginning of the book in John chapter one. You've heard me say before, I think this is one of the most beautiful intros to any book in the Bible. I love it so much. And it really just tells us what this book is about and who Christ is. John 1, I'm going to read John 1, 1 through 5. It says this. In the beginning was the capital W word, Jesus. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, and that's the word for today, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Church, Jesus is the light that calls us out of the darkness. 
He is the resurrection life that calls us out of spiritual death. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and he called to us. He shined his light into the darkness. He, he called with his resurrected life so that we could be re- resurrected. He is the word and the embodiment of God himself. He is the one that upholds the universe by his power. He is the one that all of creation was created for and through. And that person, that God, the one who has always been and will always be, calls us out of the darkness and into the light. He's the one that came to be the resurrection and the life to call us out of spiritual death so that we might resurrect as a new person in him. That's what Romans 6 teaches us, that we died with Christ and we are raised with Christ as something new. And the truth of this is going to be literally and metaphorically put on display next week when we walk through the resurrection of Lazarus, which is pointing to this truth. It's not just some amazing miracle that Jesus did. It is that, but it's also pointing to the truth that what what Jesus does for those who are dead, that he brings back to life. We'll get to that next week. But here's the reality right now. Today, we need to live in the truth of this, in the hope of this, and the, the great blessing of this today, right now. That right now, we are a new creation in Christ who has been raised with him. D- do you think you walk in the truth of that, church? So often, even now, I know I say things like this all the time, but the scripture says things like this all the time because we need it so often. We walk in this life like Christianity is a list of rules to follow. And if we follow the rules, we're good. And he's proud of us. And if we don't follow the rules, we're bad. And Jesus is is angry with us. And so we just carry this weight around of not being good enough because who can follow all the rules all the time? But he's not saying Church, I came so that you could be really good rule followers. He's saying, I came to be the resurrection and the life. He, as he said in a couple chapters ago, so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Yes, we need self-discipline. Yes, we need self-control. Yes, we need to repent of our sin. Yes, we need to take those things seriously. But Jesus is saying, take those things seriously in me. I'll be your strength. I'll be the resurrected life. I'll be what you need so that you can grow in me and become who you are meant to be through me. Church, we need to hold on to the fact that he is our salvation from death to new life in this life, spiritual death, but that this is also pointing to a greater truth, a bigger, better truth, an eternal truth, that if we are in Christ, yes, it is right now that he does these things, but our truest resurrection isn't the day that we're saved, but on the last day. For when we die, we don't really die. Listen, when we die, that's the day that we truly begin to live. That's the day that we truly begin to live, church. So yes, we need to hold on to that truth now. But knowing that truth now that he saved us in spiritual death points us to why he saved us and what he saved us for. And that is eternal life. Listen, church, scripture describes it like this. We are sojourners. Another word we could use for that. We are aliens in this world. We're aliens here. Listen, have you ever had the thought or does it ever just feel to you that this world is just not quite right? 
Like people are laughing about that, right? It just, something doesn't feel right. It should feel right. The American dream promises so much. We live in the richest, best country that this world has ever seen. Yet when we pursue the things we want, we have the, even if we get the careers we want and we marry the person we want and we have the kids we want, even if all of that stuff is true, still there's something that doesn't feel quite right about this world, that it should be enough for us, but it's not. Do you know why that is? One, because so often we put our idols in other things other than Jesus Christ. So we're trying to find our wholeness in things of this world, or I'll say of creation, instead of of trying to find our wholeness in Christ, who is the creator. Another way of saying that, we try to find our wholeness in the creation instead of the creator. That's one, but I think there's a bigger thing than that. That's a product of sin in the, in the fall, right? That, that's true, but there's a, there's a bigger thing behind that. The reason this world doesn't feel quite right, the reason that this world doesn't feel like enough is because you were meant for another world. It says Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, I love this, I love this passage. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says that God has put eternity into our hearts. Isn't that an amazing phrase? God has put, he has built eternity into your hearts. There is something in your soul that knows that you are meant for the eternal, that knows that you are meant for more, that knows you are meant for the wholeness and the glory that only comes in the presence of your God. And the world tries to hide it, and sin tries to cover it, and idols try to to drown it out, but you are built for something more. We are meant to be eternal built beings, so this temporary world never feels fully right. So when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, he's not just stating a truth about our salvation right now, he is, but he is pointing to a truer truth, a bigger truth, a better truth that our real real home is not here, but that someday we will be raised in the place that we truly belong. That's where we belong where we will have wholeness and peace with that word shalom forevermore, where we will live in the glory of our Savior forever. That's actually our real hope. That, that's the thing that we need to stand on. And I think it's a, if, we're, if we're honest, it's a hard thing for us to stand on because the world right now feels really real and really important and really vital and really pressing. And that feels so far off, doesn't it? But that's our true hope. It's truer. It's better than the hope of just Christ has saved you. It's what he's saving you to. It's what he's saving you from. And it's what he's promising you in the future. So yes, this statement is about Jesus' salvation right now. But the reality is about he is guaranteeing us so much more because he is the resurrection and the life. So after stating this, He asked Mary, do you believe? Which earlier in the chapter, he said the whole point of this thing with Lazarus, the sickness, his death, all of this was so that they may believe. And so he asked this question as she's walking through it, Mary, Martha, do you believe? And she responds with one of the most clear declarations of who Jesus Christ is and all of the gospels. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ the son of God who is coming into the world. And with that statement right there, it kind of ties the whole book of John together. Because we saw in the beginning, John wanted us to know exactly who Jesus Christ is, the word and the life. 
And we see in, the, in John chapter 20, he tells us what this book is about. John says, I, I want you to know these things so that you will know and believe in who Christ is. And right here in this moment, Jesus says, do you believe? And Martha, de- Mary, which one is it? Martha, Mary. Mary declares, yes, I believe you are the Christ. You are the son of God. Really just being the bridge for this entire book. This moment, this thing, Jesus being the resurrection and the life is what this book is about from start to finish. She might not understand exactly what Christ is about to do, but she believes, she trusts him, she has faith in him, and that's an example we can follow. So now we come to her sister, Mary, who at least, again, I I may be reading into the text, I'm always honest about that, I may be reading my own emotion into the text a little bit, I don't know, but at least on the surface, it seems that she doesn't have quite the same reaction as her sister did. Read with me in verse 28. John chapter 11, verse 28. When she, Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb of her brother to weep there. Martha tells her sister in private that Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, wants to see her. And I think it it seems pretty obvious from the text that she was trying to give her sister a, a private moment with Jesus, right? She comes and tells her in private that Jesus wants to see her because she wanted her to have a moment like she just had with Jesus. So whether it was one of two things, whether she just wasn't ready to go out to meet Jesus and she was struggling, or whether just the first time she really didn't hear that Jesus was there somehow, when she says, Jesus wants you to come to him, she gets up and she heads out and she goes straight to him. The only problem with that is people, remember, she said it to her in private, so the people that were with her thought she was going to the tomb. So they all get up, and they're all going with her, because that's what you do when people are going through this kind of suffering, this kind of pain through death, right? You gather around them, you make good food, you spend time together, so they're not alone. That's the whole thing. If you've ever been through a lot of death, there's not really a right thing to say, is there? There's not, I'm sorry doesn't really do anything, but hey, one of the worst things you can say right after someone's had loss and going through grief, God's got a plan for this. By the way, that's one of the worst things that you can say. God does have a plan for this. That time will come, but in the middle of the grief, we don't have right answers most of the time. It's just, hey, let me, let me be here with you and take care of things for you. So we, I'll, just, I'll just sit and cry with you. Is that, that's what we do. And that's what these people are doing. So she's going, they think, to go cry at the tomb of her brother again, and they want to go with her. They don't want to leave her alone. So they follow her, and that's where we pick it up in verse 32 with Mary's not-so-private meeting with Jesus. Look at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. I don't know if you have, but I've been to a lot, a lot of funerals in my life. My mom, my dad, my grandparents, a lot of my aunts and uncles. I've just, 
I know some of you have had very little death. I've had a ton of death, and it started when I was 15, and then it just never stopped. When I lost my dad at 15, and then it just, almost every year, we lost somebody really important to us. It just kept going. And all those funerals were different. But there's one thing for sure that they all had in common, and that was shared grief. Isn't that the point of a funeral? To, to be able to share in it together for the person that we love? And if, if you're like me, if you've been to a lot of funerals of people that you care about, not just like distant relatives, but people you care about, you know that there's this moment that happens. The moment when you've stopped crying, when, when the grief is still near, but it's subsided for a time and you think you're okay. You're like, I, I've got it together. I'm, I'm okay. And then that person walks in. I don't know who that person is for you, but it's a person that you love and that loves you that you have not got to share this grief with. Do you know that moment? When you make eye contact with them and you see them for the first time and you start moving towards each other and that grief starts welling up and then you embrace and then the dam just breaks again and you just weep together because you haven't shared it with them and they know you and you know them and they know the kind of pain you're going through and they're heartbroken for your pain and you just hold each other and you just cry. have Have you ever had that moment? And it wells up again and again as more people you haven't seen yet. You get it under control. And then the next person that you love deeply and loves you comes in. And it wells up again. And you share that grief with them again. And it's not only you and them, but other people around them see that moment, don't they? Other people that have it under control. And they see your pain once again. And they see the pain of the person that loves you. And the whole room kind of wells up in grief again. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been through that? That's how I picture this moment. She comes, Mary comes and she sees Jesus who she hasn't seen, who listen, she deeply loves as yes, her Lord and Savior. But scripture describes it as these people are friends. These are the kind of people that did, did dinner together, spent time together. They are close. They love each other. And Mary sees Jesus and it all comes back and she falls at his feet and she begins to weep as all the people with him begin to weep once again because they love Jesus. And he knows they understand their pain, that shared grief. And she falls at his feet, weeping, and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. This moment right here is why I think Mary was struggling a little bit with the fact that Jesus didn't make it. Because unlike her sister, she didn't follow up with a statement about how she still has full faith in him. I think she did. I'm not saying she's faithless in this moment, but unlike her sister who said, kind of had the reaction we all want to have. Jesus, I don't understand why you weren't here, but I still have faith in you. She just falls down and says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Almost like she's saying to Jesus, Jesus, where were you? Where, where were you? Listen, I, I fully believe that, that Mary knew, knew and believed that Jesus could have stopped her brother's death. But sometimes knowing that makes it even more painful, doesn't it? Knowing that Jesus could have stopped it, but for some reason that you don't understand yet, he didn't. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like that? I have. Have you? To, listen, I'm talking to believers right now. To love Jesus, 
to, to actually have given your life to Jesus and to trust him, yet still in a moment of great pain and suffering, asking him, Jesus, where were you? Where were, I prayed, Jesus, where, where were you? Wondering why Jesus could have stopped it but didn't. For Mary and Martha, they're going to get the benefit of knowing exactly why this happened. They're going to get the, the benefit of knowing exactly what Christ is doing, what he's going to do, and they're getting ready to walk to the tomb. We're going to cover that next week. They're going to walk to the tomb, and they're going to see Jesus do the most miraculous thing he ever did. And that's fantastic. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Mary and, Mary and Martha's pain and suffering is about to be over. But for many of us, that suffering and pain can last a lifetime. Because we don't get to know. We don't ever really understand. So what I'm hoping today is Jesus' response to all of this will be one more reason of a thousand reasons that even when you don't understand, you will still remember that Jesus is worthy of placing your trust in, even when it's the hardest. As Mary, remember Jesus' friend and disciple, weeps at his feet, he looks around and sees that it's not just her weeping, that it's everyone that came with her is weeping over the loss of their friend Lazarus. It says that Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is saying that Jesus, when he saw this, felt two things at once. One was a deep, strong, emotional response to seeing the pain and sorrow of the people that he loves. And it's not because he's sharing in the same grief that they're sharing in. Do you see that? Like, he knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to go raise Lazarus from the dead. He's literally going to go undo this pain. He's going to make this pain untrue in a moment. No, it's because he sees the pain that it's causing them to walk through, and he has empathy for them. He has sorrow for their sorrow. He is moved in his spirit. He sees it. He understands it. And he knows. Like, Jesus knows. Jesus knows about grief. It's just not as God, he's watching this and he's moved. Like, Jesus knows about grief, and he sees us in ours. We are seen by our Savior. At the same time, I think Jesus is, is literally frustrated. I, I think we can go far. If you go back and look at the Greek words, I think we can say that he's, I think it's okay to say that he's also angry in this moment. And here's, here's what I think. People debate over what he's angry for, but I don't at all think it's because of their lack of faith. For how could they have possibly known that he was about to go raise Lazarus from the dead? And on top of that, Martha just showed great faith in Jesus, didn't she? I know, I believe, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. I trust you no matter what, and God can do whatever he, you, God, God can do whatever he wants through you no matter what. He'll do whatever you ask. I don't think this is about a lack of faith that Jesus is angry. He's angry because he's seeing the devastation of sin play out before him. And God's beautiful creation, when we were, and, and before the fall, we had a perfect relationship with God, right? In perfect harmony with each other and with God. And then we sinned, and sin got brought into the world, and it damaged and it fractured everything. I think Jesus is seeing the results of the curse play out in front of him. The thing that he hates, evil that came into the world, play out from in front of him. And it makes, his, makes him angry that his children, that his image bearers have to go through the devastation of this. 
have to go through the devastation that is caused by sin, and it makes them angry. Church, what an amazing bridegroom we have. That in the midst of our pain, his first reaction isn't to tell us, hey, why don't you have more faith? Or listen, sometimes not even immediately try to fix it, but to show us he understands that he has empathy for our sorrow and grief. For scripture says that Jesus is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And that he sees us in that. And the pain of that even angers him. It angers him because of the fall. This is sometimes our reality. Then we see, I think is one of the most amazing things in scripture. Maybe it's just amazing to me because it's been, it was an endless comfort to me after the loss of my dad, after the loss of my mom. As Jesus sees the pain, he sees the sorrow of his beloved people, a suffering by the way that he's about to go undo. He's about to make it untrue. He sees it, he feels it, and he weeps with them. Isn't that crazy? He's about to go undo this, but he sees what's happening and he weeps. He weeps for them. Their pain that moved him to tears. I hope you see, church, that this is what Christ came to do. But just so I'm clear, first and foremost, he came so that for the sake of his father's glory and for his own glory, he would come and undo the power of sin and death, right? That he would set us free, that he would break the power of sin to enslave us, the fear of death to control us. He came so that on the cross, he could conquer both of those things. And then to give us the promise that one day he would come again to undo the power of those things, not to conquer them, to shatter them, to undo them, to make them untrue. That is what why we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. That is the primary reason that we worship him, for he is holy and righteous and worthy of worship. Yet, our God is so good. Listen, he's so good. His grace and love for us runs so deep. He not only came to undo the power of the curse, but so that we could see that our Savior truly does understand the devastation of it. That he understands the suffering and that his empathy and compassion is stirred for his, for his children. And that although he has, although he is the fix to all of our pain, and someday he's going to undo all of our pain, right now he is our high priest who understands us. And he's our great shepherd who cares for us. And he is our friend who has compassion for us. Who sees you in the midst of your greatest pain and suffering and isn't saying, why don't you have more faith? But is guiding us through the pain so that in the end, in him, we will find more faith. Through the suffering, Jesus wants to teach you how to find your faith in him. And what a beautiful thing that is. 
In verse 36 and 37, we see the Jews that are present really don't understand this moment with Jesus. They don't understand what's really going on. But soon when Lazarus is raised, they'll understand more. And they will believe, which is the point, right? They're going to believe in him as Christ. But I hope we understand a little bit more maybe than they did in that moment, church. You know, some of you have gotten the benefit, the privilege, the blessing of seeing God, literally seeing God work through your suffering and see him take your suffering and use it to, see, to do something incredible or do something good. Maybe, you may have even seen him use it, at least in part, for, towards the salvation of others and praise God for that. Right, I just, my mentor, my pastor, he went and preached at a funeral of someone who got saved on their deathbed, and he truly believed they got saved on their deathbed. And then he preached the gospel at her funeral while everyone was weeping, and that guy's daughter came up and gave her life to Christ right then. Praise God. I praise God for those stories. I love those stories, and I, I, pray, I pray that that happens to all of us. But listen, for many of us, that's not how it worked, is it? You just don't know why God allowed you to suffer. You, you don't understand. You don't know why he allowed someone you care about to suffer. You don't see it. We don't know why God didn't act when we know that he has and we believe he has the power to do so. And just here's the truth as your pastor. I don't know why either. I don't know why God chooses to act sometimes and doesn't choose to act others, and we we may never know on this side of eternity. But here's what I do know for sure, that God uses it all. Our moments of incredible joy and our moments of just unbearable pain to proclaim his glory to a world lost in the darkness. And that's what's going on around you all the time right now, church people who are lost in the darkness. And maybe you don't see it, but maybe God is actually using your pain to show those who are dead in their sins that he is the resurrection and the life. Although we wouldn't choose it, Although I think it's okay to say that, that you don't even want it, that I, that you don't even want it. God can use our pain. He can use the ugliness of suffering to accomplish beautiful things. He does it all the time. Church, is that not exactly what he did with the cross? The cross was one of the ugliest ways to kill someone. It was designed to be as ugly and as horrible and as painful and as humiliating as it possibly could be. But Jesus used the ugliness of the cross to turn it into something beautiful, the salvation of his people. And he can do the same in you and in me for the sake of those around us. For there is nothing more beautiful There is nothing greater in the world than someone encountering the glory of God, believing in their Savior, and having their eternity guaranteed. Scripture says that the angels in heaven sing and celebrate at God's throne when people believe. What if God was using your suffering 
Listen, whether you could see it or not, because I think a lot of times we don't get the benefit of seeing it, but what if God was using your suffering, even if you couldn't see it, as he used the suffering of Martha and Mary so that some might believe? Do you think maybe if we always kept that in our mind, if we always kept that in our heart and our soul, that when we were in the midst of suffering, and listen, I'm not talking about right after it happens. I'm not talking about in the depth of your suffering. There's that moment when you've got no strength, right? And when you need people around you to hold you up, to, to love you, to be there with you, right? If I lost somebody in my family close to me again, I'd be a mess for a while. I'm not saying you can't be a mess. I'm not saying you can't suffer, right? But, but what if in that moment when you, you were low, but you started thinking, I got to climb my way out. I got to find my way out. You just didn't focus in on your suffering and what you were going through and make it all about you. I know this is hard, but listen, what if you thought maybe God can use this awful thing that happened to me to show his glory to someone else who is lost in the darkness? What if you could keep that in your heart? I think one of the most damaging things of suffering, one of the things that just absolutely annihilates people is they, they suffer so deeply and they hold on to it so closely that that suffering starts to define who they are. That they don't know what they would do without it because it's been so close all of the time. Jesus is not saying, hey, in your suffering, why don't you love me more and be better? He's saying to you, I am the answer to your suffering. I love you in your suffering because you're suffering. I haven't cursed you. I love you and I'm with you and I'm doing something through this. I want to do something in you, but I also want to use your suffering to proclaim my glory to the world. Let me use this to grow you, to draw you closer to me, to give you more faith, to make you more like me, and then use it for my glory so others might be saved and join our family. That's what God wants to proclaim through your suffering. The question is, will you let him? Because I'm still in a place where I don't know exactly why my dad took my, or God took my dad, allowed him to die. Let's say that's probably better, allowed him to die when I was 15. And I wish, maybe this is a lack of faith, but if I could like undo it all and have him back right now. I mean, it's been 30 years and it's still painful. I'd, I'd take him back right now. With everything I know, I'd still probably take him right back. I don't know I had the strength to say, no, God, this is better, right? Is that okay for me to say? I'd take him back right now? But God has used that to grow my faith in him so tremendously over the years because he was my father. God showed me through that, that I'm your father. I know your father's not with you, but I'm your father and I'm enough for you. And he gave me the gift of faith through that and he's used my loss and my pain to, to comfort those again and again and again because I understand the thing is not to say that God's gonna work it all out for good because I know how painful that was for me. But he taught me just to sit there and listen and cry, and hug. We all have our different sufferings. We all have the different things we've gone through. Here's one I want you to hear. I said this last week, I'm gonna say it one more time. After you've had your time of being devastated, it's okay. After you've had your time where other people just had to hold you up because you didn't have the strength, hear me, don't waste your pain. Because the thing that unites us all is we will all suffer again. And you can make your life about the suffering. Or you can believe what Jesus Christ says is that I am with you in the suffering. And I love you. And I'm even angry at it. 
but come to me and I will teach you how to have more faith. I will grow you to be more like me so that you can find your joy in the only place where joy is real. And I will use you to proclaim my glory to the world and will welcome more people into the family. This is what Christ does. He takes the ugliness of the things in this world and he makes them beautiful. Even if you're suffering today, we let him. We let him. I love you. And don't hear your pastor today saying, if you're suffering, be better. I am saying, open the door to the people that love you and can maybe speak truth into it, help you walk through it. And if you don't have the strength to rely on Christ through this, let other people come alongside you and help hold you up and point you to Jesus Christ and let him turn the ugliness into beauty. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I think we take that word for granted, Father. But I know a lot of us in this room don't have our fathers or they're not present or they're not what they should be. And so God, I pray that we can all like feel the weight of that, that you are our Father who cares for us. And what good father sees his children in pain and casts it aside or says, hey, be better. No, God, you are a father that looks on us and says, I am with you. I am for you. Jesus, thank you for coming down out of heaven, out of your perfection, out of your glory in your majesty to not only save us, which is the greatest thing you possibly could have done for us. Pray, we praise you, we worship you for that, but that you came to show us that you understand that you suffered greater than we could ever suffer. And that through our suffering, you'll use that, the ugliness of that to make us more like you. And not only that, but use us in this beautiful way of proclaiming your glory and maybe even seeing people saved. God, what a beautiful thing to be a part of. What God, I know in my suffering it's been hard not to be selfish and focus on myself, but what a beautiful thing that you want to use my suffering to help lead other people to you, the greatest treasure in all of eternity. God, I pray for those in the room that are suffering today, that have been through suffering, that are struggling. God, I pray that you would be with them and that you would comfort them because you are a God of comfort and of peace. I pray that you would bring people around them that could love them and support them and wrap their arms around them. God, I also pray when the time is right that you would show them your glory so that that suffering might not define them. Not be the thing that identifies them. But they would remember that they are a child of God a child of a God who turns ugly things beautiful and that you would grow them through that and in that and even use that for your glory. And then God, help us all to be people that don't waste our pain, that use it for the sake of to build others up, to show them who you are, to see people saved, to see people sanctified, 
to be built to one, from one glory to another until the day that you take us all home and we are glorified and all of this pain becomes untrue. Help us, to, God, to place our hope and our trust in the fact that you are the resurrection and the life. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for all of this. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.